welcome to this month's Misadventures in Music podcast with me, Mick Ord. And me, Ian Prowse. This week we're going to be doing reggae. Yeah, more rebel music. <laughs> yeah. And our guest is Rory Taylor, who's been promoting and reggae uh, festivals and concerts and been heavily involved in reggae now, well, since 2013 and maybe a little bit before then. Great to see you. You too. Really looking forward to finding more about reggae because it's far more fractured and more interesting than I thought before I looked into it. Yeah looked into this and I know it's been a big influence on you Ian from, from the early days when you first got into music absolutely mainly because the new wave explosion mm. a lot of the uh, of the acts who were my heroes you know they all, they all got involved with it Elvis Costello The Clash you know The Police they all had a little go at their interpretation of whatever reggae yeah. they thought was you know and it was the collision there of again two types of anti-establishment music and everywhere you go you know you even to this day you you hear a lot of reggae coming out of of places uh, when you were a kid and you went to probe or extremes across the way they were always playing reggae you know and it's um, so i'm really fascinated with this podcast to to, to get to the the roots of it but to jump in on that, you're also hearing reggae and don't realise you're hearing it because a lot of pop music nowadays will take a rid- take a, a rhythm they call it you know a reggae beat or a dancehall beat, and they won't acknowledge that it's reggae, but it is you know yeah. I walk by, you know you'll hear like a Justin Bieber tune or an Ed Sheeran tune and you're like it's, it's reggae <laughs> but it's not acknowledged and that's kind of a big reason why I promote reggae I feel that it's underrepresented in this country um, so I just do my my little bit to help give reggae more of a platform. I must say, you've got a fascinating story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to start with a band I'd never heard of. I don't know whether Ian's ever heard of them. The Baba Brooks Band from 1965. Oh, OK. Teenage Scar. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, so that's 1965, but that's that's Scar, isn't it? Yeah, you know, Scar was was the dominant music in Jamaica throughout the 60s, sort of maybe 1960s to mid 60s. But you know, Jamaican music or the history of Jamaican pop music can be traced back to the 1950s, so pre-Scar, with uh, sound systems, which is like a, a mobile disco. And at that time in Jamaica, they play um, American rhythm and blues. Um, and it was American rhythm and blues um, that influenced Scar. Um, and a lot of these musicians, like the musicians you hear there on that track, uh, Baba Brooks, who's a trumpet player, you know, they were jazz musicians. Okay. You know, pre So, what, what's, so they were the American rhythm and blues artists. What's the, do we know what the technicalities are of what, what like, mutates into Scar? Yeah, obviously. The offbeat. Yeah, there's the offbeat. All, throughout all Jamaican music, the, the offbeat's the sort of, is the running theme. But as you can hear with Scar, it's very, it's predominantly instrumental, high energy, fast paced, lots of brass. And then, yeah, it was, it's a sort of mix of R&B, um, traditional Jamaican mento folk music and right. jazz. And you've kind of create that sound. And Rory, would the Baba Brooks band Teenage Scar have been on the radio in this country? Will, will, uh, will people who lived in Britain have heard this? May, yeah, I mean, there was, I think over here we called it Blue Beat and not Scar. It's essentially the same thing, but obviously selling it to a different audience. Yeah. Like, rock and roll is just rhythm and blues sold to a white, arguably, yeah. Sold, yeah, yeah. You know, sold to a white audience. It was kind of really post-Scar where Jamaican music was played in the UK. So whilst people loved Scar music... It was you couldn't really dance with your partner to it. It was very high energy, fast paced, and also there were a lot of vocalists that wanted to get involved in this, you know. But they couldn't really sing along, you know, like that track there. They just make noises, you know, yeah, yeah, but they yeah. couldn't really sing along. So yeah. people would say, "Steady the rock," so slow it down, uh-huh. and that became rock steady, so which yeah. is kind of is is the genre sort of post scar, pre reggae and. That was where the the singer kind of you know came to prominence, yeah. and lots of like vocal groups in Jamaica, and that kind of we'd call it maybe doo wop groups, uh-huh. um, harmony groups, kind of uh, step forward. Well, we're going to play a rock steady track now from Two to the Maytals, and then we'll go into your story. Okay. okay. Yes, sir.
almost reggae, isn't it? That's rock steady. I yeah, can, I can sense the difference. But where, where does it come from? Where does the actual word reggae come from? There are two definitions that I've heard and read. Uh, one is that it means like like ragged, raggedy clothing, and the, and another definition is it means quarrel. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, like you know, any more than that. Yeah. That Toots track was, yeah, the first time the word reggae was used commercially. So I'd say that is in the cusp of, of Rocksteady and reggae. And Rocksteady was only dominant for two years, 66 to 68. And then it was reggae. Well, this became, is 68, isn't it? Do the yeah. reggae was 1968. Yeah, so this is like, this is when reggae became a thing. And reggae is, um, lyrically was pretty much the same going out having a party, dancing with your girl, that kind of thing. But, you know, more emphasis on, on, on the vocals. There was... The, the drum and the bass became more dominant, you know, and then... You know, I don't want to rush ahead, but the likes of Bob Marley is, is roots reggae, which is slightly different, where the drum and the bass became even heavier. Yeah. And... But, but, but it was lyrically it was completely different. You know, lyrically it was... About, People singing about oppression, and yeah. there was Rast- this when you hear Rastafari and um, Haile Selassie. People reflecting their own experiences. Of course, yeah. Like a song. And this is why, you know, we've spoken at length before about, you know, you hearing reggae in the 70s. You know, what you're hearing is roots reggae. Because uh, I can remember when I was about 10 or 11 watching Top of the Pops, and David Ansel Collins came on, double. Double barrel. Yeah, double, uh, double barrel. barrel yeah. And, and monkey spanner. Yeah. Monkey. I'm thinking. I couldn't get my head around it, but I loved it. And everyone, and the, everyone the next day in a white school in a mm. suburb of Liverpool, we were all talking about it. Did you see? And the same when Desmond Decker came on. Yeah, he that... looked so different to what we were used to. Yeah. And it, it, was, it was only when we thought of doing this programme, we're thinking, God, you forget the impact that some of this stuff yeah. has got. Yeah. Particularly... The tunes you'll mention there, like, that's early, reg- that's early very early reggae, you know. And what year was this? Well, uh, sixty-eight onwards, but it was in the seven. It was in the nineteen seventies where roots reggae. But those tracks are, or, or, or sorry to rewind, but those people I was talking about, David Nelson, Collins, and Desmond Decker, they were getting to number one. Yeah. in 67, 68, as you say. Yeah. So that's very, very mainstream for something that kind of came out of nowhere. It His was, yeah. was a was a number one record. It yeah. was, yeah, 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 it was. But he, he had a few. If you go, there's a few. Around the big time, tune right? though was Millie. My boy Lollipop. That was right. like the that was the that was the one that. What was that? Sixty three, sixty four, even. Yeah, that was probably even earlier. Wow, yeah. but right. I wouldn't. That's not. I'll say it's reggae. No, it's you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. There's yeah, it's <laughs> more traditional. So what we know as as reggae, or you know, which is essentially it's it really, it's all about Bob Marley, isn't it? To yeah, to, uh, to us, I remember. During the, the punk and the new wave explosion, I heard jamming on the radio. I think it was his first big hit in in the UK, and I just assumed it was part of the. the you remember that band Darts? Yeah, who basically yeah. did yeah. kind of fifties do whoppy sort yeah, of music. Yeah. Well, that was passed off as new wave in a way that I thought that that uh, you know hearing jamming was that's new wave as well. Yeah. It was it was as if anything went at this particular point. You know after. Punk had kicked the doors open. Yes. Now we had all sorts. And then, of course, the hybrids were coming in of 
The Clash being the main ones, because they did it the most successfully, but their first time they attempted it was um, White Man, after they did a cover version of Police and Thieves on mm. the first album. But for one of their own songs was White Man in Hammersmith Palais, where he references Blue Beat in the song and yeah. he references, uh, you know, reggae artists and, uh, and, you know, rebel music. And it arguably, White Man in Hammersmith Palais is the Clash's greatest piece of music because they fuse... By Mick, the guitarist, he would have been the you know the yeah. genius musically behind it. They fuse punk rock and reggae, and it's wild that it works. Yeah, I know. can remember going to discos at university in the mid to late seventies, and it was punky reggae. It, it was yeah. all it was all that they played both, and it didn't seem weird. Like, like I, we, I, we, we we spoke off air about this. So I worked with Don Letts quite a lot, and you know Don's. Um, Don used to DJ at a place called the Roxy. It was called the Roxy? Yeah. Uh, well, punk club. And, like, at the time... In Covent Garden, I think Yeah, it was. punk records hadn't been... Well, there weren't any punk records, you know, for bands here. So he couldn't play punk records in between the punk bands. So we'd play reggae because all the punk artists love reggae. Yeah. And there were no punk records, so he couldn't do it. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, and that was the kind of connection between the punk, the, you know, the punks and, and yeah. the, sort of the, the reggae heads. And, you know, Bob Marley spent a lot of time in England, and he'd said to people like Don Letch, you know, he were these, he were these punks, like, he wasn't sure about them, and Don and, and other people were saying, like, they are like us, you know, the rebels like us, and then you've got songs like Punky Reggae Party that came from, came from that. But Bob is like, you know... Unless you kind of grow up in the community, in the Caribbean community, like Bob is, especially people like my age, like Bob was is your introduction yeah. Into, yeah. into the music. And um, the, so the biopic can... about him is probably the best music biopic I've ever seen. It starts off, it starts it, off in Trenchtown. And it was called Mar- the one called Marley. Yeah, Marley. Yeah, the guy that did Last, Last King of Scotland, wasn't it? That yeah, oh, was he, it? Yeah, okay. His name was Kevin. Something. And it, it's just amazing that you know he literally was brought up in a shack. Yeah, you know, there's no uh, there's no falsifying uh, no. lower class credentials to make himself appear more cool or credible. It was the real deal, you yeah. know. But listen yeah. to this guy. You know, I was I, I had a, a great musical upbringing. You know, I'm named Rory after Rory Gallagher. I'm named, my name's James after James Taylor. Yeah. But I never remember hearing reggae growing up. And I was about nine or ten, and a, a friend in school suggested that I listen to this guy called Bob Marley. So I bought Legend, his sort of best of, on tape with my pocket money. And so my first taste of reggae was songs like Jammin' and yeah. Buffalo Soldier, Could You Be Loved, I Shot the Sheriff. And... You know, I, he was basically referencing Rasta, Haile Selassie, and Marcus Garvey, and I don't know what I didn't know what any of this meant, but it was the sound, it was that drum, that bass, that offbeat. I'd never heard anything like it. Yeah. And it was funny you mentioned the likes of David Ansel Collins because after that, you know, I wanted to hear more, and you could always get reggae compilations dead cheap, like yeah. CDs. I know now that's what I call reggae. You know, 100% reggae. Reggae Volume One, Ktel's greatest <laughs> reggae. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, you get like a couple of quid in the bargain bin in Woolworths, but they always had the same tunes on. So, Junior uh, Mervyn, Police and Thieves, David Ansel Collins, Double Barrel, Dawn Penn, No No No, Althea and Donna, Uptown Ranking, yeah, you know, Uptown Ranking. Like it was always the same tunes. So I've got all these compilation albums. It's just all the same tunes on them. But yeah, from then it was like. I just wanted to explore, you know, what came before Bob 
you know, obviously what's uh, come what age would you be? I was eight, Rory. yeah, nine, nine or ten. Was, it was primary school. It was primary. It was before I went to high school. That's quite impressive. That, that is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought you were going to say fourteen or fifteen. But no, yeah. so that's, that's cool. What, yeah. Well, the people, in, people in school, my people in my, you know, in the in the mean streets of Lytham, you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't understand it. What's funny though, sorry, but talking about being from Lytham, I mean, nothing was happening in Lytham. A few weeks ago, David Rodigan, you know, big reggae DJ, was playing. It's called the Lowther Pavilion, where they all play bowls. I'm like, there's a sound system session in Lytham, <laughs> you know, tw- like 19 years after I left. Full circle. Yeah. I think the, um, the, the love affair between punks and reggae heads, rasters, whatever it was, it kind of, it, it found its perfect match with the rise of, of a British reggae band, Steel Pulse, didn't mm, it? Amazing. And the Handsworth Revolution album, which again... Almost felt like a punk new wave album, yeah. even though it's, it's reggae, you know, it's British reggae, and it's kind of their version of uh, of whatever Bob Marley was doing. Uh, but the strength of the songwriting and the tunes means that it's you know an all time classic record, Handsworth Revolution, isn't it? Yeah, hundred you know? percent. I mean, I I, uh, I was supposed to be said telling you what I was supposed to be support a DJ as well. I was supposed to be supporting Steel Pulse. Yeah, last week, and I just I couldn't do it. I just, I would. I, just dead busy, yeah. And I'm like, I just, oh. I regret it. You know, I really regret it. But <laughs> you're right. You know, and Hands with Revolution is like over. Yeah, you know, it's over 40 years old. Yeah. But lyrically, it's still, oh. it's still as. But if you look at the, uh, if you look at the, the the sleeve notes to Handsworth Revolution, they thank the Stranglers. Yeah. In it, so it's like a there was a proper marriage of 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 uh, the punks and the Rastafarians helping each other out. But recognizing this, that they had a lot of the same issues and concerns against the establishment and all of that at a time of racial tension, oh, in this right, well, yeah, massively, you know, you know, like this music, roots reggae is the it's the it's the backdrop of oppression and the riots in eighty yeah. one all around the country. The thing is, though, it, it was just especially with Steel Pulse because it was so it was it was you know from a a, a, a bloody. A British city as well, you know, Birmingham, run down, nothing going on. So they all of a sudden put all that into a record, and it felt even to this day. If I'm going through Birmingham, I see Handsworth. It's yeah. like it's glamorous yeah, yeah. to me. Yeah, you know what I mean. I just want to quickly say as well, like you know, there's. It was the rock against racism that really as yeah. well brought yeah. these artists together, like Steel Pulse and The Clash, yeah. and. Not many people, I think, know this, but Rock Against Racism came out of Eric Clapton. Came from Eric Clapton, but yeah, not yeah. Eric Clapton in a good way. In a good way, <laughs> Eric Clapton know. being yeah. on stage in Birmingham yeah. and you know ranting. He was, he was bevied, very, he? very racist. I think he was very, coked you know, up, and he was he was basically saying, "Kick everybody out, supporting yeah, Enoch Powell." Yeah. And, yeah. You and know, it was, and it's kind of been brushed under the carpet, really. A lot. It has, you know, people don't talk about it, and. Yeah. Um, it was, I think it was Red Saunders, one of the guys that sort of rock against racism, was a massive Clapton fan and yeah. was like, just, uh, you know, couldn't believe that, yeah. that he's yeah. one of his heroes. Someone that, that is, had taken black music and yeah. made a living out <laughs> Stolen of it. Stolen just a bit, and, yeah. and, you know, yeah. does that. So rock against racism was a, was a really important moment in bringing um, people together, you know, particularly the punks and, and the reggae heads and the rasters, you know, people that are oppressed just because we don't look the same these people have more in common with each other than the people running the country yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. I mean you you mentioned before uh, not being able to support 
Steel Pulse, but you yeah. actually were DJing prior to a Toots and the Maithels gig, weren't you? Yeah. What was that like? What was it like meeting him? Because he must have been one of your heroes. I mean, we just played I mean, one of his tracks. Toots kind of transcends reggae. You know, like Toots is just one of the biggest artists, or was, you know, ever. And I don't really get intimidated by musicians because I, I work with so many of them, but Toots was like, yeah, I'm, I'd finished DJing. It was at the Olympia. I finished DJing and sort of stood sort of the sort of side of the stage and he was being, Toots was being introduced and I was just staring at him because he was like, they had these, they had these, he used to wear that, like the rip, this, this sort of sleeveless tops and he had, yeah, I just thought like, God, he's so like, <laughs> so, 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 so weird, but like, he's so muscly, he's so head, like, he's, he's, he's in such good nick yeah. and uh, I go, this is Toots and then he just he had his sunglasses on, just turned around and just stared at me and then just turned back, and I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> got to me. So suits. Well, we've mentioned him enough, now we're going to play him. This is Bob Marley and Concrete Jungle. Yeah. 
So I've just discovered that Bob Marley was a Tottenham Hotspur fan. He was, yeah, allegedly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I never knew that. And also that the seven-foot-high statue of him here in Liverpool's Baltic quarter uh, is as a result of your hard work, mate. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. Um, it started as a drunken conversation in a pub, like yeah. most things do. But most thing, the most drunken conversations don't really go anywhere. Yeah. It came about because there's a foundry where where we're recording. I was a foundry, like literally next door that make yeah. you know all the statues and um a friend of mine had this idea of you know having this bob marley statue as a symbol of 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 peace of love of togetherness in the kind of divisive world we're living in now and i was introduced to the guys at the foundry just fell in love with them just yeah. thought i've got to work with you and andy edwards that made the statue created the beatles one uh, on the docks you know okay. done loads um and when I met Andy, you know, he's a big reggae head, big Bob Marley fan. Fantastic. And it was like, we have to make this work, yeah. So, obviously, you know, I had to try and get the... Whilst you can create a statue, make a statue without approval, I wanted to get the approval of the Marley estate. So I managed to get hold of their representative who was like, yeah. Because they weren't getting back to me. So I kept, I thought, well, we'll just do it. And I, I kept sending pictures yeah. of like, okay, this is what we want to do. This is how, we, this is how he's going to be standing. How, you know, cause, you know, how he's going to position this, how big he's going to be. And then at every moment, every, every sort of stage, sorry, um, with a clay model, I've sent pictures over. And, and you're not like, getting any response. I was getting nothing. <laughs> and, then, and then one day, this guy's like, yeah, it's nice. Uh, let's talk. I was like, okay. okay. And I said... I won't commercialise it. I'm not going to make any money off it. I'm not going to do little versions of it. Um, and they're like, cool, that's fine with us. Um, and some of the family have already seen it. And um, oh, I've got a name. But uh, one of Bob and Rita's daughters shared it through her socials. Okay. Uh, Julian Marley. A lot of the Marley shared it, shared a picture of it, you know. It's funny that you, it's there as a symbol of... Uh, Peace and togetherness. When Bob himself, uh, he bore the wounds of political strife, didn't he? Yeah. Having actually been shot. Um, yeah, you know, at the time there was you know civil war going on in Jamaica, and you had Michael Manley, who was the prime minister at the time, and Edward Siaga, who was the opposition. Edward Siaga was allegedly in bed with the CIA. You know, so um, ultimately the politicians giving guns. To young men, you know, to yeah. shoot each like all war, yeah. and uh, I think I can't remember, but someone thought Bob was on the side of Manly or Edward Siaga, you know, and so he was, you know, someone tried to kill him because of that. But he never, he never, he never supported any political party. Yeah, he's just got caught in the crossfire of it. Yeah, all. but you know, but people think that oh, you've done that, or you, you spoke to that guy, so yeah. you must be in bed with them. And he wasn't, yeah. you know. This is a guy with you now. I know Pete. Whilst well, Bob died before I was born, you know, I yeah. know I know quite a few people that work with Bob Marley, and they say he was the real deal. Right, he was the real deal. This guy had the weight of the world on his shoulders. Yeah, and and he dealt with it well. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's funny, isn't it? Because you know. So much so was he the real deal that he actually he got a, a, an injury playing footy, didn't he? He loved playing football all the time. Yeah. And then the injury turned a bit bad. And rather than get it fixed, 
his, it, it led to like cancer spreading from his toe throughout his body. Yeah, he, he was playing football, you know, he loves a Tottenham fan. He loved playing football. He was playing football with some journalists and uh, stubbed his toe. He got cancer in his toe. And because of his beliefs, being Rasta, he, he didn't want treatment. Right. So it spread throughout his body. But he continued, you know, he continued and continued till the end, really. Uh, and I mean, for, uh, for people that weren't knocking around at the time, they were considered to be the Rolling Stones of reggae, weren't they? they, they were, yeah. He was huge. Yeah. They were Chris Blackwell at Started Island Records. You know, he promoted them as the Black Rolling Stones. That's how they yeah. were put out there, the way they, the way they dressed... You know, the, just the swagger of them. They looked fantastic, didn't they? Did. they? If you watch the footage of them on the old grey whistle test. Or, I mean, and the bottom line is, the reason why you can even say anything, like comparing them to the Rolling Stones in that way, is the standard of the songs and the songwriting. Yeah. It's, I can tell you right here, sat here now, it's dead hard to write songs that good. You know, everybody all around the world, there's thousands and thousands of people trying to do it, and 99.999% of them are failing. But if you can do it, and then you repeat it again, like Bob Marley did, it wasn't just one great song or two great songs. There's loads and loads of them. That is so, so hard to do. So, you know, um, that's why they, they, you know, they would deserve such a... Accolade is calling them that. Yeah, 100%. You know, and obviously, if you don't listen to Bob Marley, well, I mean, that, who doesn't? But it, leg, just, you know, Legend is a great introduction. It's his big tunes. But I kind of went from there to I bought an album called Natural Mystic after that. And it was complete, like, com- completely different. Obviously, I'm getting the best of. I'm getting the more kind of the yeah. pop tunes. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get Natural Mystic. And it's got um, singing about... A song called Africa Unite, and there's a song called War, where he took um, a speech given by Haile uh, Selassie, you know, and he took that and created a song out of it. You know, he's a proper protest singer, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, he, he just happens to have, or just happens to have that knack of appealing to everybody. There's something about Bob Marley which kind of transcends a lot of other artists, even. In this day and age, you even get people saying, oh, I don't like the Beatles, you know, or whatever, whether they're trying to be cool or whatever it is. But a lot of people, it's a, it's a sincerely held thing. Don't like listening to the Beatles. Everybody likes Bob Marley. Yeah. You know this what I mean? Is, back to the statue quickly. When we decided to commission it, obviously, we were, as, as you know, reggae heads and positive vibrations, of course it's going to be Bob Marley. I mean, someone's kicking up Twitter, people kick off, don't they? Like, why isn't it? Why don't you get a statue of Dolly Parton? Um, I mean, or a reggae <laughs> festival, but anyway. Um, and then there's this, there's this myth as well, right? So you put it out on their Twitter, and it's like, we're, gonna, we're unveiling a statue of Bob Marley, and like loads of, most, most people have been like dead supportive, and like, yeah. this is great. But some people are like, well, what's the point? You can see straight through that, what's yeah. the point? Yeah. I'm a racist. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm a racist, yeah. 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 For me, Bob is this could be contentious, is culturally bigger than the Beatles. Musically, Beatles have maybe had a bigger impact, but you're right in that everyone knows Bob Marley. You can go to anywhere in the world. You can go to speak to any person of any age, and you can show them a picture of Bob, Bob Marley, show them a picture of the Beatles. Everyone will know who Bob Marley is. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think everyone will know who the Beatles are, believe it or not. So that's why I think culturally, he, he, you know, he's, he crosses well, over. Well, the, the cool kids love him 
And the people who buy their music in motorway service stations love him. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it goes right across the whole spectrum of people who consume and love music, mm. you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, three years after Concrete Jungle, which was 73, we've got an example of dub, uh, because we want to talk yeah, through how, okay, yeah. How, yeah. how reggae's developed over the years. This is King Tubby and Augustus Pablo with King Tubby meets Rockers Uptown. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> Development in reggae. Yeah. I really love dub reggae, especially when it's. Uh, I've, I've been at the uh, Notting Hill Carnival a few mm. times, and the speakers as big as, yeah. as, as houses, and then the dub starts coming out and it shakes your trousers. Beautiful. It is. You know, dub is. Um, dub comes comes out of reggae, yeah. and it's arguably one of the first types of electronic music. You know, some people call it the father of electronic music. Yeah. Um, but you'll never get that credit because it's from Jamaica, you know. No, if, yeah, it was, yeah. if it was Europe, then, yeah, of yeah. course. Um, but what it is, is it's where, like, you know, the engineer becomes the artist. So they'll take a track, which is mainly kind of predominantly instrumental, and they'll 
they'll manipulate it, they'll stretch it out, they'll, they'll recompose it, rearrange it. Drop stuff out. Yeah, they'll drop stuff, like a composer, echo. you know, they'll, yeah. They'll, yeah, they'll bring some vocals and bring them out, bring yeah. the guitar and bring it out, you know, you can hear that heavyweight du- uh, drum and bass there as well, yeah. and then they'll also add kind of studio effects like a delay and, and, and reverb and that kind of thing to, to kind of create more of a more of a soundscape and who was the most influential person in the kind of development of dub um, Rory there's okay so there's a few people so King Tubby uh, and his apprentice scientist uh, Lee Scratch Perry as well and in the UK a guy called Mad Professor but King Tubby and scientists had an electronics background so they were like fixing radios and TVs building amps so they were like pivotal in the development the sort of technological side of, of dub and developing that whereas Lee Perry and his and his mind <laughs> were, 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 were I mean he was pivotal in kind of developing the sound you know how far can we push this music how crazy can we go with it and you've uh, worked with Lee Perry haven't you yeah I've worked with Lee yeah um, we were we were fortunate enough to book him for a f- festival in 2018 and um, <laughs> he, went, he, he lived in Switzerland so <laughs> We were told, right, so he, was playing, he was playing with this band and we were told that, um, obviously, usually, as you know, Ian, like, you know, get to the city or town and yeah. you go, go and find your hotel, you know, and chill out for a bit, maybe do a sound check. But unfortunately, that didn't happen because the, the planes were delayed. So he literally got to the venue like 10 minutes before he's supposed to be on. Um, and he gets there and he always had this little bag little kind of uh, suitcase that it would, with wheels on it. And we're in the green room, and he opens it up, and he, and he gets his teeth out of it. There's nothing, there's no clothes in it. There was, his, there was it's like his teeth, little toys, shells, little pebbles, like, like the backpack of, a, of an eight-year-old boy, right? you know, but with false teeth, right? Joking. No, it was just like, <laughs> wow, not, not a pair of socks. Yeah. Like Kinder Egg toys. And, he, yeah, and that, he just put his teeth in. Just, yeah, just he took his teeth out and then put them in. And my partner <laughs> was with me. She was like, just, you know, thought she was going to collapse laughing so much. And what I love about Lee was he didn't have a big rider. Like, his rider was like, uh, you know, a bottle of Prosecco. And he wanted to build, like, a shrine. So he wanted fruit and incense and candles and all that. So my uh, my partner, Sylvia, she... Uh, she she built this shrine with Lee, and that's kind of one of her favourite memories wow. of building a shrine. Building you know a shrine, and then that kind of. Um, and would he just hang out in the shrine then? No, we kind of it was like it was like a I say shrine's the right word. Like I kind of what do you call it? It's a sort of shrine really. Like put a small put it on stage. Just be ah. like on front of the stage, just candles and incense. Oh okay, you know, like a stage sort of prop. But yeah, with, yeah, with, yeah. With meaning. And did he have his band with him, or was he doing a system? Or what? no, he was doing. So Lee would work with a lot of bands, but the book, the the time we book, booked him, um, we had a band from New York um, called Subatomic Sound System, which was more kind of dub. So you had Larry McDonald, who Malik knows that one of your one of your podcasts. Uh, Larry was you know a, a percussionist used to play with Gil Scott Heron and Bob Marley. He was in the band. Um, there's a guy called Emch who was like, you know, on the controls, adding all the effects. There's a, there's a sax player. So when it's, I thought it sounded better than a, than a band because, you know, Lee was a character, you know, vocally wasn't, you know, 
yeah. superb. He'd just come on stage and start, you know, just rhyming stuff and ranting. And but if you've got like a little dub effect on that, it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, and it, and he was good. Did, like, did oh, the energy, because I, I the energy, the energy was the energy was absolutely amazing. It was funny because it was it was at Constellations. It's no longer there now in the Bal- in the Baltic. And I said to the venue owner, who's a good friend of mine, I said, I know that no one's allowed to smoke in the building, and ov- and obviously no one's allowed to smoke cannabis anyway but lee's gonna lee will spark up on stage and we can either tell him not to and try and take him off the stage or we can do that or there's going to be a riot so lee you know obviously like he always does kind of lit up on stage and then like started passing it around (laughs) and and then like and then all the and then 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 then, you know then things were passed to him and i was just like okay okay great (laughs) just have to let it Go. You, you, yeah, you know, I'm not condoning it, but you know, you just you got to go. If we, if we try and if the security come, you know, bounce on stage and take a spliff out of an old man's mouth, you know, yeah. what's what's going to happen? Yeah. yeah. And, and and this is you know you, uh, we haven't really talked about your promotional work with all mm. these reggae artists yet, and it is an interesting point be, because I would have thought it's quite difficult to gain the trust and respect of people. Um, who you don't know, and you've certainly got that. You're going to Jamaica in a couple of weeks' time, aren't you? Well, well soon. I'm not, you know, yeah, soon. You've yeah. got you've worked hard to gain that respect. How how did you do that? Because agents or people that promote, they've got a terrible reputation for yeah. ripping people off. Let's face it. I said Ian will know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't know. You, you've got, I'm also well. I'm very conscious, and I've become more conscious of how non-Jamaican I am and how white I am you know you have to you always have to bear that in mind like this is I'm a guest in the house of reggae you know this isn't my culture so if I'm promoting it it's different listening to it than DJing it when you start promoting it and and putting gigs on and there's money involved um, then you know you've got to make sure what you do is credible and has integrity and I hope we do that but I, it's it's just it takes it takes years of just doing what you do, and then hopefully doing it in the right way. Always communicating with the community. You know what do people think? You know how yeah. can we involve people? And they'll have their own intra of course they problems will, yeah. with each other. And and you know, like it sounds really obvious, but don't walk around speaking in Jamaican patois. <laughs> like. <laughs> Just like, no, it's like, it, yeah. yeah, it's be, be yourself, respect the music, and because pe- people can see straight through yeah. you, yeah. and they can see like actually this is a good person that respects the music. And with anything, it's just you just do it, and if you get a good you know track record, then people speak to each other. So promoting has actually afforded me the opportunity to meet a lot of these artists, you know, these pioneers in like Durban and roots reggae, and and represent them. As a, as a booking agent or management, you know, say so I used to manage an artist called Scientist. You know, he was a massive dub artist. I mean, like legendary in this industry. Trust is a is a massive thing, yeah. uh, particularly and particularly in, in reggae and, music in Jamaica. And it's the music industry as well. So it's by default, it's of course it is. Flaky, yeah. yeah, you know. But you know, when they find out as well that I'm a lawyer, you know, that helps as well. You know, because they see, oh, a lawyer's a those are good people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. If only they knew. <laughs> some money. Right. This is going to surprise you, this next track.
case or no, this is into my era. <laughs> you know, we'd had uh, punk and new wave, and then I, I, I remember walking into school uh, one day uh, across the schoolyard, and in massive blue letters, somebody had spray painted on the school wall, specials AKA. I didn't know what the hell it was, you know, but we found out pretty quickly that it was part of a new movement. It's two tone. Yeah. You know, and it was. Uh, Madness, Selector, Beat, the beat, yeah, specials, I mean, and it was a, it was a, another bit of the kind of it felt again like it was another bit of the punk revolution, really. It was in the kind of lineage of of this Jamaican music, like two tone was like an offshoot, and obviously heavily, it's, you can hear it's it's influenced by Jamaican music. It's a kind of mashup of the first wave of ska, yeah. That's why we call two tone the second wave of ska. Yeah, it's like a mashup of that and punk. Yeah, and but it was white and black kids in bands together. It was, and mainly from like Coventry. Yeah, you know, imagine that. Coventry, <laughs> yeah, the birthplace. That's of what that comes to pass. That's what I loved about that because it wasn't like Liverpool or Manchester yeah, or, London. or London. It was yeah. somewhere a bit, yeah. you know, that you like. I just happened to have cousins that lived there, right. so I, I was kind of, you know, getting into it. But it was a joy that wasn't it? To, it was. This, it was. Is, this has emerged out of nowhere for yeah. us. And again, it was a working class thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It was a working class musical revolution, wasn't it? Yeah, 100%, yeah. And we, we've been fortunate enough to work with The Selector. Yeah. We put The Selector uh, 2017. And same before, like, I don't really get intimidated by artists, but Pauline Black, yeah. in the nicest possible way, intimidated me. Really? Just yeah, there's just the way she holds herself. Yeah. She's just the coolest person yeah. ever. <laughs> you know, and I'm like... I remember before they performed, we were doing a Q&A and you know, Dennis Bavel was, was part of it and Pauline was part of it and John Robb used to host them. And uh, they're all backstage and everyone wants, I want this rum and I want this gin or I want this kind of drink. And I said, you know, Pauline, do you want to, it was like a wine, it was like a gin. And she just turned around with this kind of warm kind of red stripe in her hand. She's like, I'm fine with this, thanks, darling. I was like... <laughs> Yeah. Wow, like, oh, you're even cool. yeah. like, you're okay with a cut warm kind of red stripe. <laughs> you're okay with red stripe. <laughs> Lovely. And that for me was like just cemented that she is just the coolest. But this is the first time that there's been a collision between um, the next generation of immigrants and the indigenous population making their own music. Yeah. You know, before that it was like imported in or whatever. But now we had it for the first time. Yeah. You know, our own, yeah. really. And it's had, as we were talking before, it's had a seismic effect on my generation because I know a lot, I've got a lot of mates who got into this sort of stuff and they never went anywhere else. They felt musically fulfilled for the rest of their life. And it was, yeah. it was so great to dance to, wasn't it? Yeah. You, you know, it, you could dance to it or you could just, you know, just listen to it. It was so great. You could dance that. to that, you know. Cause that's the madness tune there. Like, yeah. I love I love playing it when I'm DJing and just yeah. you know when we're DJing at a party and it's like I'm gonna drop this because because it's just the way it builds up yeah. and then it just drops. Um, yeah. But it's great what you're saying, Ian. Like there are many people. Like, I know a lot of these people that they just haven't explored music past you know no. 1970 whatever. Like you know, and it's I think it's sad. I get it. I get that music has, especially music of your youth, has a massive impact on you. I yeah. get it. I completely understand that. And there's a, you know, but music evolves. It continues. Yeah. And you don't do it with telly, do you? I know they have old TV 
programmes on, but you don't say, hang on, I'm only, only going to watch Coronation Street now from no. 1970, because after that, it, you know, when Ina left. You don't do it with telly, <laughs> do you? you know, why would you do it with Well, yeah, but it's, everything's changed now, because, you know, within uh, 12 months after this two-tone musical revolution, there was New Romantic, yeah. and two, two-tone was yesterday's, you know, mm. uh, guitar strings. Yeah. Uh, and then indie came out, and, and it kept... It kept evolving and changing, but it's with the advent of the internet, that's kind of ended now. That that the the moment of youth tribes is sort of it doesn't happen like that anymore, does it? You know, the world is different again altogether, and it, it's it's a, there are things going on, but they're completely different to what but, the way we it used to be structured. Yeah, but we listen we listen to music differently, don't we? You yeah. know, the, because of technology, you know, we're we're all, we're all about the single. We're not even people not even listen to a whole you know an entire song anymore. No, because we can just go. That's thirty seconds of that. Next, next, yeah. next. So, yeah. you know, you That's you're never going to be part of a of a subculture if you're not. No, you know. Really engaged with well, you get, all the you know, music. And any band that might kick off a subculture, you can go on bloody YouTube and watch their first rehearsal. You know, and it's yeah. so there's no there's no uh, magic to it, is there? Or mystique? No. We're going to hear a, a, a dancehall track now from Sister Nancy. This is from '82. Yeah. Um, and w- tell us why you've chosen it after we've heard it. Okay. Long, long, little sister, not to make your bad song. Hey, mama. 
Sister Nancy, the great Sister Nancy with Bam Bam, that's 40 years old this year. The tracks I've picked today are not necessarily my favourite tracks, but um, I love them all, but just want to sh- illustrate you know, the depth and diversity of Jamaican music, and that's what we call early dancehall, or digital dancehall, and it's, this is where, again, you know, technology created dub, uh, and same with dancehall, this is where... Um, People don't want drummers anymore. There's the electronic, you know. There's the drum machines, the samplers, there's the keyboards, you know. That all the, the de- you know, the just, just the way you can program music. That's where kind of where dancehall comes from. Right. And then later on, you've got dancehall that people might know, which is a bit more aggressive, um, something quite homophobic, uh, misogynistic, which you know, obviously, I don't. Don't condone, don't support. But that's what you were saying, that's one of the most sampled. Yeah, Bam Bam is one of the most sampled reggae songs or dancehall songs ever. You know, Jay-Z sampled it, Kanye West has sampled it. Um, the, the tunes, you hear it everywhere. It was watching Ozark on Netflix and it was on that, you know, the other day. Like, it's, it's, it's a song that just keeps, just keeps getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> And obviously making Nancy a little bit of money. She had one album, and that one album, this one song. Yeah. And, you know, 40 years later, she tours and makes loads of money from this Good for her. one song. Good for her. So how does it... Because that's very close to reggae, but it's, you know, it's not really... I don't know, it's kind of... It's, it's, the, the, the depth and diversity of Jamaican music has been... You've showed us here. Yeah, yeah. For real. Yeah, what it all is, you know, from playing madness to playing that, you know, you can sense and feel the roots of it all. But it, it is—they're quite a long way off, and all, aren't they? They do. I do think, like in, in the later years, it is—it is technology that's kind of changed the sound, and it has with every music. Yeah, you know, there was a—you know—so that's the eighties, you know, and throughout the eighties, like music did change. Yeah, you know, the, that the would have lot- been made in uh, in an expensive recording studio because there was no other type. Yeah, you know now nowadays, um, this laptop here is your recording studio. So yeah. it's a, it's democratised the entire thing, hasn't it? Of course, it has, yeah. Finally, we've got um, Modern, two thousand and twenty. The so model, only two years ago, the yeah. model by Prince Fatty featuring Schneece and Horseman. Yeah, why have you chosen this one? Featuring who? Schneece. Schneece. Shanice, S H N I E C, and Horseman. 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 Okay. So this is where you know this is um, Prince Fatty actually managed Prince Fatty. Um, I'm not just playing the cut, but like, Prince Fatty is a producer who he doffs his cap to the the legends of reggae. You know, he, he the old music. He acknowledges the roots of the music, but he kind of puts his contemporary. Uh, spin on it so it's, it sounds quite modern and like this is where you know I w- I'm always trying to get younger people into the music yeah. and 
you know, you, Bob Marley doesn't always do the trick. So you have something that is um, a bit more modern, a bit more kind of popular, com, you know, accessible, is that the word? Um, and yeah, and then Horseman, well, Shanice is a vocalist singer and Horseman's a, would you, he's a drummer, he's actually a, 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 a big drummer actually in reggae music, but he's, a, he's, a, he's an MC. Or in, in Jamaica they call MCs DJs. Okay. Or toasters. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, this would. This is kind of. This is a, a, a cover of model of craftwork. Oh, wow! Um, yeah, but it's uh, a style that you'd call uh, again another kind of offshoot called rubber dub, which is a bit more upbeat, kind of hip hop elements, popular. Yeah. Anyway, just yeah, hope you enjoy. <laughs> no Prince Fatish, show them what go on.
Fatty, as you all know, featuring Schneese. Oh, I've said it wrong, haven't I? Schneese. <laughs> Schneese and Get Horseman. Get the Horseman in there. Get the Horseman up. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to be getting an email from him or getting slagged <laughs> off. Mate, you don't. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's a, he's a big man. So you work with uh, Prince Fatty, haven't you? Yeah, I work with all of them, actually, but I manage Prince Fatty. Um, and I've worked with Horseman quite a lot. You know, he's uh, say, a top drummer in the, in the reggae world, but... Uh, you know, I mean, just hear his voice, like, and he he looks like what he sounds. You know, he looks looks like what he sounds like. He's a big guy, yeah. you know, and he's he wears these like, you know, he, he, he talks like that. His big deep voice. He's just you know just jewelry, you know, like, <laughs> and he wear wear a big jumper with a horse on it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, "Are you horse man?" <laughs> and no. he kind of refashions. Old hits quite a lot of the time, like the model, doesn't he? He does, yeah. He, he does his own stuff. And I, as saying off air, I'm not a massive fan of like um, reggae versions of of things. Um, I think they can sound quite you know, cheesy. But yeah, he does like he's, he's done stuff like Jefferson Airplane uh, remixes. Um, he's going to do a Janis Joplin one coming up. Right. Um, and yeah, he's been doing a lot of stuff with the Last Poets as well recently. You know, so. That's what I like. I like I, I like I like all music, and I like to see the mashup of music. I like to, you know. Well, we we've certainly experienced that today, Rory. Yeah. Um, thanks for the, giving now, us the potted history of the whole thing. Yeah. No. Uh, no. You, some of the things you're famous for. One of the things you're famous for is the Positive Vibes Festival. Yeah. You're not doing any more of them. So what are you going to concentrate on now? No. Um, yeah. So you stopped the festival. Last year was the last one, and then I've got a few gigs this year and then I'm kind of calling it a day in terms of putting on gigs it's, it's difficult you know um, to gamble putting on shows particularly in Liverpool and particularly reggae <laughs> um, but also as I said I mentioned before you know bit promoting has afforded me the opportunity to meet artists and work with artists in a different capacity so you know I've been representing artists and managing artists and I'm an intellectual property and commercial lawyer, you know, I'm a music lawyer. So I'm wanting to focus more on that, work, you know, take a step back, be in the background a little bit more and you know, carve out that carve out that sort of role, you know, as a music lawyer, which I am, but actually work in the music industry. And I think a lot of people, well, over the years they, they like that, you know. I know your world because I work in your world. I know about all the wizards that you have to deal with, because yeah. I deal with them, oh. you know. And yeah. will you continue to work with reggae artists? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, as I said, you know, as we discussed before, like, the, the trust thing is massive, and, I, you know, there's a lot of trust with, I hope, with me and a lot of reggae artists. I work with lots of artists in Jamaica, and, um, yeah, I do. I want to I wanna give, you know, I want to, support the music in every way I can. You know, Jamaica's not... Jamaica is, is culturally rich, financially it's poor, and I want to just help support reggae musicians, particularly from Jamaica, you know, and make sure they're not ripped off like they have been for years. Well, so, yeah. Fair play to you. You can't say any better than that, can you? No, and it's great the, the work you're doing. Uh, I mean, there isn't a musician I, I know who's been in the industry like as long as I have that hasn't had a bad... You know, experience mm. with being ripped off. So it's great that to have a you know somebody who is a music lawyer and actually involved in the business themselves yeah. from a from a musical perspective. So I think that's really important. And uh, thanks for coming in today for doing this. Thanks very much for inviting me. Stuff. Thanks, Rory. Fascinating. Cheers. Bye-bye.